So Amanda, you want to go ahead and get started? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Amanda Maples. I'm the curator of African art, and I'm here with Matt Doles and Alun B today. This is our first time, Matt and I, trying to co-host an episode, so we'll see how this goes. It'll be fun. It might be undulating and meandering, but hopefully in interesting ways. And I'm here with my dear, dear friend, Alun B. He's an artist from Senegal and also an architect, trained architect, a musician, artist in general. He's been recently making sculptural art, so he's basically a renaissance man he does everything he's kind of amazing and we always have the most interesting conversations and we really spark off of one another and so i'm really excited to have him be our first co-hosted episode that we take a stab at so that's my little spiel matt do you want to take it away since this is your podcast really so you know how to ask the the foolish and wise questions <laughs> welcome could you please pronounce your name correctly for me so my name is Alun b well, in France, they say Alun Bay, but it's the same. Yeah. I know Amanda's already talking to you and knows you well, but of course, myself and the listeners probably don't know you very well. So I always love to know sort of how people got creative. So like their background, their childhood, like were your parents creative? Was it some teacher? Like what sparked your interest in sort of the creative industries? I would definitely say that like I was born like an artist for as long as I can remember, like, you know, my earliest memories, I was already like messing around with art. Amanda knows this. I had like a family that actually was very anti-art. It was one of the, like the things that was like very, like that I could hear in, in my house was artists are the garbage of humanity. So that was pretty intense. But at the same time, that's, I was just an artist. So I had to like navigate through that and yeah, push through. Okay, wait, that's a really rough start. Wait, so your family said the artists are garbage of society? <laughs> of humanity. Of humanity. That's a big hurdle to overcome as a child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's such a, there's just so much you know, in every challenges is opportunities. So that was like such like, you know, it helped me set the bar really high in many ways for me. Now, just to be clear for the listener also, where was this that you were born and raised? So I was born in Senegal, West Africa, which is just a little south of Morocco. And I like to say it's the nose of Africa. And it's a special place because it's the closest point to the West. A lot of uh, African-American slaves were shipped from Senegal and Ghana, but Senegal was definitely one of the main ports of slave exportation. Yeah, there's a, a famous spot, Gore Island, correct? correct? That has a door of no return. I think even Obama has visited that site. It's a really famous yeah. site that people go to to memorialize the transatlantic slave trade and then those that were lost, not only at sea, but to to the new world and never heard from again. So, and you and I have been there together or was it, yeah, I think we have. We did, we did a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> In a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> I love it, Star Wars, great quotes. <laughs> but now wait, how long have the two of you all known each other? I think since 2016, around that, time 17 so like five six years ago so not that long ago technically compared to star wars but <laughs> it feels like a long time but no, i think it was earlier maybe 2014 or 15 i because i was working on the goodest gold show and i was researching early on and i think i took that show on in maybe 2012 
Mm-hmm. And so I would have been in Senegal and this is the first trip that I went and I ran into you at the Ifan Museum. There was a show there that Usman Bai, who's a designer that you know, had worked on. And I'm not sure if you did too, but you were there with him. And I think, you know, that moment where you just see someone in the room and you know, you have a connection and you should know each other. I think we just gravitated toward another and, and we've just sort of been close friends ever since. Yeah. And we've met each other on so many different continents too, and places like, yeah, countries. Now, I noticed that you studied in architecture in San Francisco. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. I got to know. So how did you get from Senegal to San Francisco? I mean, if you're going to say like, oh, because I studied architecture, you could have studied architecture anywhere in the world. Why San Francisco? Okay, long story short. So like, you know, the whole story of like the family. It was so my dad's in real estate. So architecture was not my choice. It was like, you know, it was, it was basically he told me it's okay. I'll give you two choices. Like number one, I'll help you like get an education in the States in architecture. And number two, I help you not, you know? <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll take first choice. And uh, that's how I ended up in the States. I actually did my undergrad at university of Miami in Florida as an architect. And then like for grad school, I actually looked into the Academy of Art University, which had architectural programs. So it was like my way to fool my dad to tell him like, okay, I'm doing architecture, but I'm hanging out with artists. And that's exactly what I did. So I was just hanging out with artists when I was in, in the Bay Area the whole time. And that's how I, I had my underground education in art, you know? <laughs> well, I went to San Francisco Art Institute as my master. So I know oh, San nice. Francisco a little bit. You and I have talked about that sort of plurality of your identity, which is common to a lot of people. You, I know you and I have talked about you being French, Senegalese, American in a lot of ways because of that kind of experience, yeah, of, you true. know, going to school in America, growing up in Senegal, but also being French. And, and you, you spend a lot of time in Paris as well. So I, I love that because, you know, I introduced you as Senegalese, quote unquote, but you're, you're so much more, you know, plural than that, as, as are a lot of people. And I think your experiences have been so dynamic. And I think that comes through in your work as well. And you're so open to the world. And maybe that's because of that experience quite early on of moving around and being in these new places. Yeah, your your heart is open to a lot of new people and experiences. And that's really powerful. So I just wanted to point that out that we've talked about that before. And yeah. What, wait, hold on. France? You didn't even mention France in all this. Yes. <laughs> I lived in France as well. So my parents, it's my dad who's from Senegal, but my parents met in France. So um, I'm half Senegalese. And so your mother's French then? She's half something else too. She's a, yeah, so it's complicated. That's why. So let's, let's just not go into, into it because it's, there's just so many layers, but yeah, she's part French. She's, she's definitely a French citizen. Let's just say. <laughs> I feel like there's something illegal in, in that conversation, but we'll just let it slide. It's fine. <laughs> some, some crossing of illegal borders or something. But anyways, I know you as a photographer. I've seen your work as, as a photographer, but I hear that you're also doing furniture design. Is that what I heard? More like a sculpture. I did a sculpture recently, and I think that's definitely coming from my architecture background. I'm in a place where at some point I had to just focus on one area on one field, which was photography. And that sort of like opened up like the door to like being respected as an artist. And then from there I was like, okay, 
I can be free now. And right now I'm just like my next, I'm working on an exhibition for 2022 in Ivory Coast and it's going to incorporate soundscape design, uh, a sculpture in the middle of it, photography and videos. I do a lot of videos as well. So I'm just like bringing the two. I, actually, I don't even separate them at this point. I just like, it's my way of expressing myself, you know, through all these like different mediums. Okay, wait a minute, just to be clear, how old are you? Oh, <laughs> I'm 40, I'm 40 years old. You look fabulous. Nobody can see this, <laughs> but trust me, he looks fabulous for 40. Google it. Yeah, you can watch the <laughs> TED you. Talk as well. The TED Talk, there's two of them. You've done two TED Talks. I have to ask, how the hell did you get, like, I would love to do one TED Talk. How did you pull up you're doing two TED Talks? It just landed on me. And it's funny because I noticed that like every time I try to do something, like every time I try to apply for like an art residency, it doesn't work. And when I don't try, I meet like amazing people like Amanda and the doors just get open naturally. So I just stopped trying at that point. <laughs> well, okay, let's get back to that. So, so when did you start doing photography or like art as a sort of a a, a business or a, a like a professionally when i graduated you know and i left california i actually trying to work in paris as an architect but my diploma wasn't was not working in paris so i had to go to either germany scandinavia or england when i was in denmark talking about like funny stories i meet someone who just tells me you're an architect and that was not your choice. That was your dad's choice. But deep inside, you're an artist and you will not be able to get away from that. And I'm like, how do you know that? And he tells me, well, that's the start of my life. That's amazing. I was going to ask you if there was a moment where you shifted from architecture to photography. And I know we've maybe circled around it in various conversations. But yeah, was there a moment of reckoning where you're just like, oh, it sounds like that might have been that moment where you're like, I'm, I'm an architect, but actually I'm more an artist. I'm a photographer. And this is when I'm going to shift gears. Well, that was definitely the, the key moment when uh, it, it gave me like, so basically this older man, he was in his 70, he was probably 75 years old, telling me that like he had the same story as me and he can see it in my eyes. That kind of like gave me like, just like the confidence to be like, I don't need to be an architect. I could jump in it. And this is like my life story. You know, I'm just going to live it. And, uh, and I went full force on it. And uh, next thing I know, my first exhibition as an artist was the Universal Expo in Italy. It was a big thing and a big confirmation that I, I did the, the right choice. That was the Empowering Women series, right? Is that the Correct. one? Correct. Exactly. But wait, hold on. You weren't giving me any like timeline on this. So what are the years that these things happened? So that was 2015. I'm going to the Universal Expo, my first exhibition. And uh, the big thing about it is that like I have 50 million visitors for my first show. And my second show after that is uh, a show in Paris in a tiny little bar. And there's like about like 20, 30 people. I had to fill in the gap, you know? <laughs> so. Well, I mean, one of the big questions that I was wondering about you is, is like, from my experiences, I find that like, oftentimes creative people sort of have a home base and then they sort of build their community and their network from that location. And, and whereas with you, from what I can understand from the stories you're telling me, you started in Africa, then you went to North America, then you went to Northern Europe, and then you went to Southern Europe. And so like, do you have a home base? And like, 
is that sort of like hopscotching around and jumping around like is that working for you versus sort of building a foundation and a network in one location you're absolutely right i've been every three years changing countries now so far it's been good i don't know how long i could like you know keep up with with this lifestyle and I'm getting in my 40s, you know, in my 40s. I think it was Sting who said that, you know, life begins at 40. Maybe, maybe, maybe I need some form of stability at this point. You know, that's kind of like how I feel about it. But just to be clear, we'll I am not implying <laughs> that you should be changing your life in any way. I was just asking, like, lots of people would say that jumping around from place to place, some people would say it's incredibly beneficial for an artist artist's career because they mm. get new experiences. Some people would say it's incredibly detrimental to an artist's career. And so I'm wondering if that's beneficial for you or if you're finding that it's creating some issues for you. What I would say is that like, it's been very true. And like, I mean, I see a lot of reciprocity between that lifestyle and the way that I grew up. So in a way, I feel like it's very in tune with who I am, or at least how I live through life and talking about authenticity, because like that shifting moment of me, this, you know, really taking ownership in like being an artist was also like a way for me to be true to myself, to be real with myself. And it was beneficial to my career because it helped me also stay true to who I am as a person. One of the things that I that I find in my own work that is really interesting is that idea of home and, and sometimes verses, but not not quite. And that idea of diaspora and, and sort of living in these diasporas and different experiences. And, and I think those are really messy terms and really burdened terms. And yet we still rely on them quite a lot. So I think I'd like to ask Alun if he has a sort of working definition in his own mind of what home is. And maybe your, your sort of reflections on this idea of diasporas and diasporic experiences. Well, especially nowadays, you know, with this whole globalization, one thing that like, you know, I realized with time is that you become the places that you like live in. I go back to those places. I was just back in the Bay Area not long ago and the moment that I got there, I was like, oh, I'm home. You know, I had that like home feeling. I'm back mm -hmm. here in Senegal. I'm like, oh, everything's so familiar. You know, the birds in the sky, everything, you know, I'm just like connected to the environment. Same thing in Paris. And I guess like what it awakens in me is, and going back to the word diaspora is, it's almost like, you know, dispersed version of yourself, you know, almost like, you know, being able to explore all the possibilities of like, you know, that you are within. I love that. That gives me goosebumps a little bit <laughs> because I'm also someone that's moved around a ton since I was 16. I've just been obsessed with traveling and I've lived all over Matt too. So he knows this. And, and I think since I was that, that young 16 year old, that idea of home and place has always been contoured around the people that I've met. And that's what makes a place for me. And I think that's what makes a place special. So I think when you were here in Raleigh, North Carolina, you met some amazing people and it made it a great place. And I think for other people, they, they'd be like, why Raleigh? Raleigh, North Carolina? But actually, it's a great place. There's cool people here. There's a good energy about it. The vibes are good. And I'd say the same about the Bay Area. I lived there for many years, too. And whenever I go to the Bay Area, I'm like, damn, I'm home. Um, Chicago still, I've lived there for a few years. I still go back there. And then the UK and, and the Netherlands, like all these places I spent time. And so then I think the, the definition of home, quote unquote, gets expanded. It's this expansive thing for those of us that are very mobile like that and really draw our energy 
from people and places. And, and I'd say that I think that all three of us have a commonality in that. Well, it's interesting you say that my father, I think, or my mother, I forget, one of my parents, we were, I was talking about, actually, oddly enough, I was talking about Amanda, you and your husband being in Hamburg. And they made this thing, this joke, they saying, well, it's really interesting. This generation seems to like move a lot more than previous generations. Like it's a very new thing to move a much farther. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, it was very rare for anybody to even live, much less die farther than like a hundred miles from where they were born kind of thing. So this world traveling and world experiences and all this is, is a very new thing that I, it sounds like all three of us have engaged in to the fullest. I'd say people of my, my parents' generation born in the fifties were very tied to you found your one job and you raised a family and you had two kids and you know a picket fence and one and a half cars <laughs> whatever the statistics are it was one and a but half dogs dogs <laughs> <laughs> i'd say i'm right in that elbow between what gen x and whoever i'm 42 and, and luna's 48 so I don't remember what they call us, Gen Z or some dumb, I don't remember what it is, but it's like <laughs> that little window of those of us that remember the internet happening and mm. having to learn it and still re relying on encyclopedias, which, you know, and, and rotary dial phones and things like that. We, we went through all of that. So we have facilities in our faculties in technology, but also very much remember growing up with, yeah, rotary dial phones and mm. beepers, answering machines and things like that. I was watching Seinfeld again the other day and I was like, oh, this is outdated. <laughs> he has to steal the the message, the tape <laughs> from a woman's answering machine. <laughs> so anyway, I, I think our parents' generations were very more stable and you were successful if you were stable and had that house and that family and you could show your status and your stability and your success through that. Whereas we are chasing jobs. We're chasing our career goals. And we also, I think this goes hand in hand with people getting married later in our generations as well, because you want to make sure that you are successful as an individual and your career is built before you go uh, align in your life with someone else. I've seen that be more a characteristic of, of our generations as well. And I think Alun and I have kind of talked about some of that over the years of us knowing each other. Like, I think you've circled around this idea of stability and, and not necessarily, I don't know, like, I think you want it, but then you're not quite sure it'll fit in with that, that the, the goals that you have, because you do such amazing things and you think so deeply about our human experiences. So maybe you could talk more about that, like. Do you sometimes think that a life settling down, quote unquote, would complement or maybe not that idea of, you know, how to really express human experience with your art? I would say that, like, you know, the time of latency is so much more important than the time of action. And I think this is what I want to cultivate the most, actually. So it's not about just like settling down, having a family and like, you know, the dog, you know, <laughs> the nice house by the beach. But it's really about like being able to create that like vacuum space where, you know, create room for new things to enter my create creativity process. But like, you know, as I was listening to you just now, Amanda, I was like, I realized that like, maybe that is my stability right there. You know, like the fact that like everything's a new every now and then, and it's like, it's just a, a fresh start. 
and uh, and that's probably why I'm able to like jump between mediums too because it's like I need that you know it's like it's my way to hit that refresh button on my internet page you know <laughs> well I was going to ask you about that which was the the changing of mediums like uh, w when I was in school we were highly discouraged from that we were told you are a painter you are a sculptor you are a photographer and you you that's your that's your reputation and that's the thing that you should be known for and then you build on that throughout a career have you had any pushback on the idea of changing mediums with your work? Don't get me wrong. The reason why I say this is because I know a lot of artists today that are working in multiple mediums that, you know, if we had had that opportunity 20, 30 years ago, we probably would have also. But it seems more common now. Um, and so I'm just wondering if there is anybody saying, well, but you're a photographer. Why are you doing this? Or, or whether or not people are just embracing it. Yeah, all the time. Even my gallery is telling me, no, you can't do that. You know, you have, we want that recipe, that photo that you, can you just do the same thing? You know, we want that same omelette du fromage, you know. <laughs> At the same time, because I was always like that, but it was, I remember it was my brother who told me one time, he was like, you know, you're really good at what you do, but people will never be able to see you because you're just doing too many things. If you could just focus on one thing, for a year, you know, you'll see that like, it will like, you know, it will make a, a big difference. And I kind of like look at like everything that I was doing and I was like, you know what, photography is probably not the easiest one because it's actually really hard, you know, and there's a lot of competition. Well, it's hard in terms of like competition. Everybody has a, a camera in their pockets nowadays. So like, you know, you it's, it's almost like what I think it was Tim Ferriss who was saying that he was saying that, like, you know, being poor is it's actually harder than being rich, because when you try when you're trying to be poor or if you if you if you if you in the like the poor uh, pool, you actually have more competition than like, you know, <laughs> richest people like nobody's really wakes up in the morning and be like, you know, I'm going to be a billionaire. No one does that, you know, so everybody you know, does a lot that. of people. No, no, we all do that. We all want to be billionaires every day. You wish, no, but, but, but I love the way you phrased it of uh, no, when you're trying to be poor, nobody tries to be poor. Like it just happens. <laughs> it's a it's usually an accident of some sort, not an intention. Well, it's like, well, there's definitely like also a part of us that will be like, it's too hard anyway. This is out of reach, you know? Well, like you said, it's not an intention, but there's no real intent. Like nobody will wake up at like 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning and be like, you know what? I'm going to get rich. I'm going to like track the stock market like for 10 hours and I'm going to be a billionaire and I'm going to buy like, you know, I don't, well, at least I can speak of myself. I don't think, I don't dream of being a billionaire. I don't think of like parking 50 Ferraris in my garage, you know, like I don't. <laughs> I, I'm not a fan of Ferraris. Don't get me wrong. No, I should wait. I should rephrase that. That maybe? sounds really bad. I love Ferraris, but I'm not a fan of any <laughs> car that it costs more to maintain it than it does to just own it kind of thing. So like to me, that hyper luxury cars, I find that they're more of a, a like a weight around your shoulder because at one point I owned a, a BMW and it was not a nice BMW. It was an old BMW and it cost me like every time it went in the shop, it was like a thousand dollars minimum. Just, you know, pull it in the shop, thousand dollars plus whatever. I found I finally was like, fuck it. I'm not buying these expensive cars because they're so expensive to maintain. 
So like it becomes a bigger burden to have that. So like, no, I don't want to. I totally agree with you. And that's why I think like most people actually think like you and I, I'm pretty sure that like Amanda doesn't want to have like, you know, a car that costs more in maintenance than, a, you know, so, but there are a few people out there that are like, you know, oh man, I'm going to get a plane. I'm going to get a private plane. And those people are not competing with a lot of people, you know, they just, it's just. That's true. <laughs> Did I mention I lived in Abu Dhabi for a while? <laughs> my dream car is a tesla i can't help it i want a spaceship i want to drive a damn spaceship around i've been in them before and i was like what is this because i've always drawn like driven 1990s nissan altimas until this last car that i bought because i was living in the bay and i had to commute an hour and a half in each direction i was like i'm gonna break down on whatever the highway is between santa cruz i can't remember right now wow yeah i was like i down on my 97 Nissan Altima, and that's not going to be cool. It's one of the most dangerous roads in America. So yeah, I bought a Volt. I was like, all right, give me a hippie plug-in car. <laughs> that's, that's what I want. I want. I'm getting closer to the spaceship dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it brings up the idea of like dreams, like or sort of aspirations. So like, what are your aspirations with your career? So you're you're expressing stories and you're telling things. But your but your experiences are changing. So like you in the beginning of your, of your career, you were telling. I apologize if this comes off wrong or, or inappropriate, but like you were telling very African stories. But now you're not really living in Africa. Now you've been living in the United States and you're living in Denmark. So like, are you is are your stories changing? And are you going to start to tell something else, or is it still going to be rooted in that in your sort of childhood stories? Even though like my, my stories are like rooted in, you know, African background and I still think that they carry a universal message. And that's why I think in my work, you know, whether it's like presented in Hong Kong or Europe, it's actually well received. I was just in London and there was this Japanese woman who was really drawn into my, my work. And, and when you look at it on the surface, you're like, you might think that like there's no connection, but the, the message is so universal. It's just metaphor. I like to see my messages as an aphorism to some extent. Yeah, I think it's specifically with the Evol series, which is the one you were showing in London. It was at the 154 Contemporary African Art Fair. That series is, I think, relatable in to a lot of people. I think that's what you're, you're talking about, that sort of universalism of it. It's these stories that we've been told, no matter where you live, about history, about how we've become human in a way. And, and those histories have almost always been told from a, a male perspective and usually a white male perspective. I know. <gasps> oh my God. And, and so this series, Alune really focuses on flipping that on its head. And what if it was a woman telling these stories? What if it was the women who have always been carrying these histories, but who are actually recognized as being the strength and the defining character of our humanity? And that's what I think is very immediately recognizable with that series. And I don't know if you want to talk a bit more about Evolve, that being your most recent series, and about that sort of idea of history and how, how we have told it over time. Yes, yes. And I almost want to add to that, because someone told me, like, are you using, like, you know, African or people of African descent? Because based on science, we all go back to, like, you know, we all come from Africa, you know? And I, and I said, no, I use that because it's been underused. That's the reason why I'm using that. I know that like my art is extremely expressed 
through contrast and contradiction because I do believe that like the space between two opposites, that space that like, you know, it's just like right there in the middle, it's prob- probably the closest thing to uh, what we define as truth. And that truth, I think like, you know, that space is actually that the part that's usually not seen, you know, we might see, we see the Republicans, we see the, the Democrats, but like right there in the middle, like those neutral, you know, that neutral space right in the middle, there's not a lot of like, you know, noise around it. Maybe that was not a good example, but I think you, you understand what, what I mean. You know, it's almost like, okay, a better example would be like, you know, night and day, you know, the dawn or the sunset. But to me, it is like the crucial time. You know, if you could like, if life could be like a long sunset or a long sunrise, you know, we could probably get more insight or be more present with it, you know. So that's why I try to take on like the end scene and trying to put down on a pedestal somewhat, you know. So I would I would love to do like a project with Native Americans, for instance, you know, I'm just I'm just saying it. That would be interesting. That good. You could spend more time in America and I'd be happy. I get to see you more. <laughs> Sounds great. A hybrid, you know, like something hybrid, you know, like that's interesting too, because that's been even more underground. Yeah, there's some amazing communities here in North and South Carolina, the the Gullahs and the Geechees that are mostly descendants of Sierra Leoneans that were, you know, forced over to the Americas, but then also have very much drawn in Native American cultural influences and and ethnic ones as well. Like I, I believe that they are now actually mixed with Native American as well as Sierra Leonean and other African descent people. They're very interesting. And these communities still live in a lot of the inherited ways from Africa and I think Native American experience as well. So anyway, there's some really interesting kind of hybrid communities like that that don't get talked about very often. And and I know there's more of those in America. Uh, I'm getting a ticket right now. I'm just like Googling it. (laughs) Coming back. (laughs) The Native American experience has been uh, horrible in its own right. So, yeah. I st- my father worked with uh, the Lakota Sioux and I've done a number of things with Native Americans as well. So like they got the the rawest of raw deals in America. Okay, obviously I know I shouldn't be saying that because slaves were probably worse. I don't know. So, I don't know. A crime's a crime, you know? It's like, so I, I wouldn't even compare, you know? It's Well, but a, a lot of Native Americans were actually taken on as slaves as well. So I guess they actually are quite comparable. Yes, absolutely. In that sense, it sort of makes sense for, you know, those newly arrived Africans to to meet and see, you know, recognize the, the same kind of violence that these other communities were already undergoing in the Americas, right? I mean, maybe it was like, let's, we're all being sort of oppressed. Let's, let's band together. Yeah, I, I wasn't there, so I can't speak to it. But yeah, theoretically, it sounds right. I agree to really? the idea. Okay. Alun, I want to know something about your sort of lifestyle. So you mentioned that you have a gallery that sells your work. I'm assuming sells your work, not just exhibits, right? Correct. Okay, great. How do you afford all this? Like you're you're traveling the world, you're you're having exhibitions in Asia and and, and London and America and all and like are you selling artwork? Are you doing other jobs to support this? Are you like how, how do you have this jet set lifestyle that is quite quite envious for me i don't own a ferrari you know actually bought a bicycle recently 
<laughs> Electric one. <laughs> no, I, I could Was it a Tesla bicycle? A Tesla. <laughs> it's the Tesla bicycles. <laughs> I, yeah, I could say, I could definitely say that, like, I've been blessed with just people really, really wanting to collect my work. You know, they say that, like, Happiness is when reality exceeds your expectations. And I could, I could say, I could definitely say that, like, I was not expecting that, that like in a day, I don't know, like, I mean, it's, it's been an amazing journey. And I will just like refer back to what I was saying earlier, because like, even though like, yes, the money is coming in, I use it to be pragmatic with my art. So when I travel, it's usually related to my art. It's either to showcase my work or to get inspired for my work. So I almost like see it as like gasolina for my work, you know, the money and, but the guy, yeah. And I've just extra gasolina. So it just tells me that like, I could do extra work at this point, you know, I could like, I'm actually contemplating on like taking a whole year off to just produce work. Thanks to fruits of, you know, everything that I've done so far. That's the plan for 2022. <laughs> I hope I get to see you during that time <laughs> when you're making work. It'd be great. You, I wish the audience, the, the listeners could see Matt's face when you said you were going to take a year off. You would have deer in headlights froze. <laughs> I, I'm a bit dumbfounded by that because I, like, I work four part-time jobs just to make ends meet. And you're, you're just sitting here like, yeah, I think I'm just going to take a year off. Just make, just, you know, just kick around, get inspired. Like, seriously. You live the charm life. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, are you, is, are you independently wealthy or are you selling really, really well? I'm selling well. I could say that. I'm selling well. That's great. I mean, I love hearing that. I have like collectors buying like whole series all at once. And that's like, you know, that's unexpected, you know, like you just in, in a day you do uh, what you would think that you would do in a year and you're like, okay, what do I do with this? But at the same time, it was not always like that. I had like, you know, I had a time when I was like really struggling, especially when I was like trying to be an architect. I remember I tried to be an architect in Senegal and I made like $300 in a, like the whole year. And that's when I was like, okay, I need to, to leave this place, you know, <laughs> it was tough. But I, I remember right before I left, I saw a good friend of mine who was always giving me good advice. And he said to me, he said two things. He said, the first thing was like, you know, the more possessions you have, the more possessed you are. And the second thing that he said was like, you really get what you want in life when you're ready to lose it. I went with that attitude of like, you know what, I'm not doing it to, to make ends meet. I'm doing it because I love it, you know, period. And so everything that happened afterwards were just surprises. Yeah, I was not expecting it. And, and I think I'm definitely also like, that's something that I've been sharing with Amanda a lot is that like, I'm definitely coming to a place where it's time also to give back. I have like a few protégé here in Senegal that I'm trying to train because when I got into photography, I didn't have any codes. I had to like learn it on the way and make mistakes. If I could do workshops, you know, and thanks to Amanda, I did a few. And it's something that I was, that I'm trying to do here in Senegal too as well and in different places. So I think I'm, I'm getting to that place. Like, Okay, wait, I, one last thing about this. I want to know. 
So you, you said that you know that you were not doing well at a certain point, and then there was something that happened, or some transition, or some opportunity that came your way that sort of flipped a switch in your career that made it so that you had more opportunities, or you were making more sales, or whatever. Is there a particular thing that you could sit back and say, like, it's because of this, or this person, or this exhibition? Was there something that sort of changed the trajectory of your career to this? incredibly lucrative way that you are currently doing it, which I yes. am so envious of. I want to like put two things, but to me, they, they're like the same. The first one was like, I was in, I came to Senegal after the States, right before Denmark, I came to Senegal, tried to like, you know, make it as a, as an architect and I was struggling. And one day I got robbed. They came into my place and they took everything. So everything that I had, like my cameras, I just lost everything. And that's when I was like, okay, at this point, because I have nothing to lose, I could just like leave and start over. And that's why I moved to Denmark. The only thing that like I did not lose was like a tiny, remember like this old cameras, tourist cameras, they were like about that size, you know. He's holding up a very small book. Exactly. You know, you could get them for like a hundred bucks, 150. Oh, uh, um, a point and shoot. A point and shoot. There you go. Thank yeah. you. That's all I had. So I met that guy in Denmark who was able to read me and I tell him like, you were able to like, you know, basically see me. Can I take a portrait of you? And he says, yes. And I take a portrait of him with that stupid pointed shoot camera. And the, ca the photo is amazing. I mean, I've lost like, you know, I had like two 5Ds, Canon, like a, a 1D Canon, which I bought, uh, that I bought in Japan a long time ago for $5,000. That was gone. And here I am like shooting with, uh, a $100 camera and the photo is amazing. And it made me realize that like, it was never about the gear. It was really about your sensitivity, you know, like, and I just decided to just invest in that, you know, like, just like, trust what you feel, trust what you feel. Well, I, I totally understand. In case you didn't know, I'm also a photographer. So like, I know all about the like gear and like how everybody's always like chasing the better equipment and like, Ooh, if I buy this better equipment or get this better software, I'll be a better photographer. And I'm, I'm constantly trying to tell my students, I'm like, no, no, no. Poor musician blames his instruments. And so like, if you're talented, you can make beautiful things with any resource you're given, not the better equipment gives you. Now, I mean, of course there is technical stuff like sharpness and focus and things like this, that yes, of course you can achieve with better equipment, but the the ability to express an idea comes from the, the creator, not from the equipment. And I'm such a huge fan of that. So it's really nice to hear that you're, you're, you made at a certain point, some of your most moving work on, let's say not professional equipment. Yeah. And I, I want to highlight this sort of mentorship and this move towards teaching and, and, you know, thinking about future generations. And, and I've seen Alun at work, you know, with young people and teaching them how to light black skin, which is not something that gets taught anywhere else. And then also how to talk to your subjects or, or how to maybe have a process that does allow that idea or that person's hood, that their personhood to shine through. And, and that's something that Alun is amazing at. And that's why a point and shoot camera would, would work for him because he knows how to see people. He sees them and then he actually translates that into the body, into the work. And I think maybe here's, we could talk about either, you could talk about uh, mentoring if, if you wanted or, or some of those workshops you've done, 
or it'd be interesting to hear about your process. I remember in Empowering Women, you definitely had something you were you were telling these, these women or a conversation that you had that allowed them to portray something that was deep inside that wouldn't necessarily be visible right away. Yeah, I would love to talk actually about like, remember I was like talking about like the dawn and the sunset and that's the thing. And, and in, we circling back to jazz, I heard once like this great sentence that says, when you, when you don't have anything, the only thing that you can do is improvise. In terms of creativity, I mean, I think like if I go like with like a, a plan, a perfect plan, I feel like I'm limiting myself. I love to go to like, a, like the, the, the location where I'm going to shoot and just like improvising there, like seeing like, I don't know, like a, a stay, like a, a broom, like on the floor, a pole, like just like picking up random things and creating a reflector on the spot by just like grabbing like a piece of fabric that was like just like sitting there, but because it's stained, it brings, I don't know, warmth or just a, a different flavor to the shoot. And just like basically being able to compose with the now has been a main, a key element in in my way of pro producing my work. I remember that, like, uh, you, you mentioned Usman Bayer earlier. He told me when I did the, the, the Empowering Woman project, he said, your work is great. People love it, but it's lacking love. That's what he said. It's like, you know, just like put more love into it. It's like, it's too severe. So that's why when I worked on the edification project, which was my next project, I didn't do any casting. I just went on location with like an open heart and like just trusting that the exact thing will come to me. I didn't know what it was, but I knew but that thing that it would be, would be the right thing. And so trusting the process, you know, it's like, it's almost like, you know, working, working with like an act of faith. And when I say faith, I don't mean faith as in a religious manner, but more like faith as in like, you know, you are hitting like the light switch there's no doubt in your mind that like it will not turn on if you hit that switch that's how i do my photography or that's how i approach my my work and i know that like my agent has a lot of problem with that she's from uh, belgium slash germany and she's always like well okay i understand that you want to do that but here's a list of things that you could also do and she she you know she writes all these scripts and I'm like, okay, I'll just take them and I just toast them out, you know, and I just do it. And then in the end, she's like, wow, that's amazing. You killed it, you know. I'm like, thank you for the script, you know, because it was a reminder not to use it. You know? <laughs> I love that. It's like faith in the world and faith in yourself. So like what the world will throw up for you. And, and I think, you know, trusting yourself enough to throw out somebody else's rules and, and just go with the flow, go with what happens to you. And, and I think one of the most iconic images from that edification series was that young girl with the blue and the red. She looks like Superwoman, right? And that that image is so, so striking and powerful. And you just ran into her that day. You, you trusted the process. You went to your site and you saw her and talked to her family, right? And and photographed her. And that photo, yeah, it's the most, like, I'd say it's the signature of that series. You can disagree no, with is. me if you'd like. But that's... It's the mascot, for sure. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on one second. I want to just make clear on something. The young lady in the red cape and blue outfit with the... VR. What looks like... Uh, VR goggles on, 
you just happened to find a young lady wandering the streets in a red cape and a blue outfit? No. So I had the the cape and I had the VR, you know. I just knew that, like, I wanted to put a cape on a child and I wanted a, a, a girl. It was important for me that it would be a girl. But, like, you know, so I'm just, like, sitting on the, 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 the place where I'm, like, you know, I, I knew also where I wanted to sh- where I wanted to shoot it. And I was just waiting. And then I see this girl wearing this, like, African dashiki with like yellow embroidery, like, you know, on her chest. And I'm like, it can't be any better than that. Like, I mean, even if I tried to work with a stylist, it wouldn't be as good as what, like, you know, that they offered me, you know, and I was like, this is it. And sure enough, even up to now, actually, when I see her, because every now and then I see her in Senegal every every six months or every year I'll bump into her. She just runs at me and gives me a huge hug. Meaning that like transcending feeling that I got out of out of it, she got it too. And and so do the people that actually see that that photograph all around the world. I have a funny story about that. This band, like the, the Nubians, they're from France, but they they are pretty famous in the US. So I had an exhibition in Chicago and I'm going to the exhibition and I get in the elevator and as the door opens. I see like the, the main singer from the Lenubians and I'm like, I'm stuttering. I'm like, you are, you are. And she's like, yeah, Lenubians. And I'm like, wow, I'm such a big fan. I love your music. And she's like, thank you, thank you. And then she's like, oh, I came here to see uh, Alun B, you know, the photographer. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, that's me, you know, and she's like, wow. And then like, you know, she tells me that when she saw that picture of that little girl with the cape, she cried because... She grew up seeing that image in her head all the time, but not being able to like see it crystallize in real life. So it was almost like a, a liberation of like something that was like deeply imprisoned within her. That's amazing. I feel like that's not a singular story, though. Knowing you the way you have for a few years, it's like this happens time and again. It happened when you were here in Raleigh true, for your show true. at Cam, the Contemporary Art Museum. In downtown Raleigh, we had this uh, a woman who wrote a play basically because of experiencing your work and a process she was going through. And she would come to the Good as Gold exhibition that featured several empowering women images from Alun series. She would visit the show over and over again to commune with these women that were telling her to like drop all Don't the shit and like embrace Don't play small. Don't play small. That's yeah. And play big. And so she told Eric Gard, who's the director of Cam about that and started coming in to see Alun's show at Cam. So she, there's a nice story there. And, and I don't know if you want to elaborate on it more, but I, I'm just saying like this is not a singular occurrence. People relate to Alun's work in a really powerful, stunning way. And it gets in there. It like, gets deep in. Now you say you said it all, and it was touching. There was also this well, this you. But you're right. There's a lot of moments like that when when it gets more than personal, it gets like really intimate, and and that's why intimacy. And we had that talk in uh, North Carolina. It's authenticity is the the common denominator. If you really want something to get across, like we all speak different languages in like, you know, in our way of communication, we all so different, but if there's one thing that we all understand, if there's like a universal language, it's authenticity. It's like, you cannot deny that. So if you see someone that's truly 
just expressing his like emotions, like, you know, his like, you know, his livelihood is, it speaks to everybody to some extent, you know? Yeah. And I feel like we're in a moment that's been a lot of posturing and especially with the Black Lives Matters protests and the other global protests that were happening about visibility, about being seen and about kind of overturning the systemic racism that has been so rampant in this country and elsewhere in the world. And so people felt, okay, well, I have to jump on the bandwagon. Museums, for example, like I work in, would start posting things on Instagram and you can tell when they're just doing it because they feel like they're spoda instead of really making systemic change or really understanding what's at stake and what's at play and what people are actually speaking out against. And so I think you're very right. People can tell the difference. And when they see that authenticity, that, that realness to it, it's so tangible. The the intangibility of it becomes tangible and you can just feel it. If that makes sense. Yes, I, I hope to get a. I'm, I'm glad that this is recorded because I want to listen <laughs> to this again. This is really powerful, powerful things. Okay, wait. Now I'm the outsider on this. So, because Amanda, you have had many conversations with Alun and you know his work intimately. I don't. Um, so, like, I'm looking at the shit, I'm looking at the edification series and. On your website, it's a bunch of pictures, but there's no text. So like, I don't have any additional context beyond the images. And I'm guessing that there is more context. Now, the reason why I'm getting to this is because writing of text these days is a sort of a mandatory part of the artistic practice, whether it's artist statements, whether it's titles of your work or applying for grants or residencies or exhibitions. Do you do your own writing and sort of how important have you found that to be sort of in helping to build the the story around these works versus just the creation of the images themselves? I would say that I do a lot of thinking, but I do very little writing. So that's my uh, Achilles heel. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily there's amazing people around like Amazing people that I know, like Amanda, <laughs> who helped me a lot, a lot with my writings. And I'm um, always... Wait, Amanda, did you write his statements for him? I have... Yeah, well... <laughs> you did, didn't you? You did. I can see it on your face. Okay, fine. Wait, she I wrote think... on two series for me. She worked on the Evol as well as Edification. I think we have this great understanding of one another and we have these amazing conversations where I just feel so inspired and so powerful and badass and and also just so um, healed. And and so I wanted, I I think when Aluna's approached me for those last two series to write about it, we have these conversations and then I write. So it's all Aluna's words and sometimes he'll provide some of the, whatever he has actually written. And then I'll just take those and rework them and polish them and, and then insert some of our conversations and some of that gold that is a loon and his personality and just inject that. It's not my words. It's just me sort of shaping them <laughs> a little bit to describe what he's doing in that series. So, and I've done that now for, yeah, for Evol and Yes. Edification or no, yeah, Power for, Women. See, all three series actually. <laughs> so I think the statement for a couple of things, and then there was some publication or book that I wrote for recently. As a Senegalese colleague of yours that was publishing the series, right? Yes, something right. like that. For I haven't seen an art collection. Yeah. 
So, so really what this breaks down to is, Alun, you have befriended a curator who is writing your text for you. Is it really what this is? Uh, you, I think you mentioned something illegal like earlier, like, you know. That is not illegal. I, no, no, wait. No, wait. Okay. I want to be really clear on this. I love that. I wish that was more common. I wish that was more accepted and acceptable in the arts industry because I feel like artists, we have enough jobs on our plate to just make interesting ideas and then make interesting artwork that we don't need to also place or, or, you know, place the artwork into the art canon. We don't need to create context for it. I feel that cur- that is the much of the role of curators, and I feel like they are a great resource for helping with that. And I would love it if more curators would be involved in that. That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. I just wish they were. Strong point. I've seen it elsewhere too. Yeah, I I've noticed that in a few cases there are particular curators take on particular artists' work because they really believe in it. And I'd say Lena Iris-Victor, Renee Musai has written a lot of her stuff, right? So I almost always see Renee's commentary on Alina's work, and it works so well. It, it's just they, they gel. You can see that relationship as well, which is really powerful. I'd say it's happened with Irve Yumbi and Sylvia Forney, who's a curator up in Canada. So I've seen her write time and again on Irve's work. So yeah, it happens... And I've actually dreamed about doing that for my husband, Sean Richards. Like, but guess what? He's not African and my area is African. Not that I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm not Spoda. And, and we've definitely talked about this. And it circles back to what you were saying earlier, which is, you know, not staying in your lane, kind of creating a different medium, just doing what you think expresses the idea. Sally Robbie Khan said the same thing in the conversation we had, where it's just like, the message is the idea, not yes. the medium. So you use whatever tools are at hand to express this idea that you're trying to to have come out. But yeah, I would love to do a show of Sean's work and do some some writing on him. And I, we keep talking about it and trying to find the opportunity. And I will say I've done a little bit of editing of his his show at camp. <laughs> I edited his his statement a little, just a, a smidge. That's a good one too. Like I remember that. I would love to have a, a curator as a wife to edit my own. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah, but but I I find it a bit uh, troublesome. Like the uh, in okay, just to be clear, like in America, I feel like curators don't take on that role of helping artists to write their text very often. In Europe, I've seen it more often. I see a lot of curators getting involved in helping with artists to craft their text. I mean, they don't write it for them, obviously, but they they help to craft it and hone it and all that. And I sort of wish there was some, because I've heard some people be sort of like disrespectful to the idea that a curator wrote their text kind of thing, which I think is very unfortunate. I believe that that's the the great role that curators play in the arts industry is taking the work that artists are making and giving it context, putting it in a place, putting it in the art canon, talking about its place and its references and its experiences and all this. And, and I wish that it was more widely accepted. It's a little bit of a game, isn't it? I mean, we see the matrix of the art world in a different way. <laughs> so I think we know the tags, we know the taglines and the sort of things that will help contextualize that, that'll that'll ignite what's already sort of happening in a, to a greater degree within the museum world, within the art market, et cetera. So yeah, I think it makes sense to sort of have those conversations because you're the artists are doing the work. We're just sort of the ones that are marketing it to people in a way that it, and not, not, economically, more socially and culturally. 
I like to call curators the gatekeepers because like they're, you know, artists make their stuff and then it sort of all funnels through curators and curators can contextualize the work and but they also have connections through their network to gallerists, collectors, museums, institutions, etc. So like the artist, if they are smart about their careers, will funnel their work sort of through a curator. The curator then will sort of spread it out the other side. And unfortunately, I didn't learn this until I was 47 years old. So there you go. <laughs> That's an interesting power dynamic. And it, it's, a, it's a tough one to grapple with to realize that there is that you, we do have a bit of power as curators. And I think that that very power, especially in the last few years, is being challenged as well. I think that a curator's role is changing fundamentally because of all the last two years, especially. And we are now not the experts, quote unquote, anymore. We we do have those facilities and we are trained, but I think our training is now better geared towards bringing in those voices and towards amplifying them in more plural, multiplicitous ways, as opposed to, I'm the expert, I write all the text. I decide what comes in. We're more about what is the community input? What do people want to see in the museums or in the galleries? How do you see yourself represented in this space? And how can I help that to happen? If that makes sense. So I, I just think that, especially the last few years, curator roles are being challenged and are fundamentally changing. And the also the education that you need to become a curator is also being seriously looked at and challenged. Because the I, I mentioned this at our interview earlier, and then I'll turn this over to Lou because I'm talking a lot, but... Only 6% of curators are of color and that's across the board. So that's a huge problem. And so that's why I think there's more and more visibility to this curatorial role and that it is being challenged and dismantled in some ways. But I mean, obviously it's still very upheld (laughs) in a lot of ways too. So I'm kind of interested in what's going to happen in the next couple of years. And I wouldn't mind hearing from Maloon about this, what he thinks about that. Okay, wait, one clarification I'd like on that. You said... 6% 6% are people of color. Is that basically any non-white or just black or African-American or anything? So clarify it. So BIPOC. Huh? <laughs> what? BIPOC. <laughs> black indigenous people of color. <laughs> okay. So the, the whole say, spectrum. Yeah. Okay. The whole spectrum. Okay. It's mostly white women like <laughs> me. <laughs> yes. Our, our resident white woman who curates African art. Got it. Hmm. problem in the field but still very very much the reality currently but it is changing and it has to it's just going to take a little bit of time this is something Alun and I talk about too it's it's interesting to see how this is changing and to be you know having been in this position for 17 18 years and then to see it fundamentally change and how I can be a part of that change but also a little bit scared of it if that makes sense well, I'm a professor. I got into being a professor because I really wanted to teach. And now full-time professorships are going away. And of course, white men as full-time professors are also going away as well. So yeah, all these careers that we went to school to try and go into, the careers are sort of going away. I know you talked about like the future of like, you know, just art in general. And it's true, like, you know, it's been it's been so many changes recently and we i mean we're not even going to talk about nfts and i mean the whole world is like you know it's just like shifting wait are, do you not want to talk about nfts because you don't know anything no. about them or because you don't like them or you don't no, care i'm just about saying them? that like you know if we go there it's a it's a whole 
it's a whole like you know we should like it should, we need an hour to talk about that you know so i'm just gonna like are are you are you going to make an nft in the near future i don't know i don't know i'll be i'll be honest with you i don't know but that's actually what i want to talk about i want to talk about how the questions that i'm asking myself is that because things are like it's it's and it's always an open question just in the same way that like project edification with the vr i was not attacking on a uh, digital technology, contemporary, like, you know, digital technology. What I'm really interested about is like, what happens to the purpose of what we do, you know, and I'll, and I'll give a good example, because I love examples, as you, as you know, already by now. I'll take like, sex, you know, the purpose of sex, you know, ultimately, it's to make babies, <laughs> you know, you know, I'll, they, I'll just use that, you know, among other things, but ultimately, you know, I think that's, that was like the original purpose. And what if, if sex becomes digital, then like eventually the whole like baby making process will be somewhat challenged. And I wonder sometimes if like, you know, we will have like something similar with like happening to the art, like, you know, will the purpose of art shift because of everything's that's changing right now. So will art will be a testimony of history or will it be, will it become something else because we are evolving as a species? I don't know. It's an open question, but I think about that a lot. I love your metaphor about sex, first of all, but beyond that, well, I, you, the one thing you didn't mention in that though was what is your definition of art currently? Yes. Good question. Very good question. <laughs> so like, how, you know, if you're going to do a thing about like where it's evolving to, we have to talk about where it is right now. Art is probably the closest thing or that like, you know, that the people can like hold on to as like, you know, a better testimony of like time, you know, of like our history. There's like two ways to look at like history. You could look at history through like history books and like, you know, the history that you learn in school and deep down if you're not too stupid you just know that like basically the people who won the war are the one who like are telling the story of like they're telling you exactly what happened and then there's also like history with people that actually left traces of like their time whether it's like all the way back to like you know cavemen drawing like animals on a cave and we're like okay you know there were humans here and this is what they were doing to like nfts today you know so my definition of art is like how history has been testified through emotions, you know, through capturing like what someone was feeling based on what he was experiencing and being able to like leave traces of that on a medium, whether it was like on a sculpture, a rock, a piece of paper, music, as long as it was expressed and documented, then we're like, okay, around that time, this is how the world was. To me, that's what art is, you know, it's like, it's a testimony, you know, finding of through emotions and feelings that like, this is what humans were living around that time. I love that idea of history being so tied to emotion and feeling because us scientific brained Americans and Westerners have a hard time, you know, and we rely so much on the written when so much of life exists outside of recorded history or writing. And so that I think 
especially in evil, some, in some of your work, you're trying to sort of highlight that emotion, that feeling that comes along with the way the history is written and told and, and told in other ways as well. So anyway, that was that's a really interesting part of what you're saying is that I think a scientifically minded folks have a hard time grappling with is that history is emotion and feeling. And how do we capture that? Well, the other difficult part of that is right now, and I'd say probably only within the last maybe 100, maybe 200 years, is that art has become a business and, and it's very capitalistic and it's involved, you know, between tax issues and money laundering and all kinds of other things, you know, and then of course the lootings and the all the different things that have been happening throughout the world, it's become a, a business and a thing that it's about, you know, moving money around and influence and power more than necessarily the actual expression that those creators meant for their piece of art. Yeah, it can be. There's a lot of energy around quote unquote African and African contemporary work right now too. And there are people that really believe in it and care, but there are definitely people that are capitalizing on it. And they're like, well, this is important in this moment and it's going to get me a good return. I don't care. I don't give a shit about the artist or what they're trying to say. I just see that this is hot right now and I'm going to buy it. And in 10 years, it'll be worth even more or even five, whatever. Like it's definitely like playing the market in some ways, just focusing on art. And these people with a lot of money spread their money in a lot of different places. I mean, you're just, you're sort of making sure you, you had your bets, right? <laughs> so there is that ugly side for sure. But on the more positive side, I think for me, art is, it's holding up a mirror to where we are at this moment in time. And I think it shows us then our positionality and where we are at, because we all need to attend to that in order to move into the future. So that's my little like hippy dippy positive sort of feeling about art is just like, oh, hey, that's right. That's where we're at. You're making us see that water we're swimming in right now. So us plebes running around, like working really hard. <laughs> the art is just like, remember that this is happening right now? And you're like, oh yeah, fuck, you're right. Oh, now I see how I'm part of that or I'm complicit. So how can I sort of also contribute to a better future for everybody? So I think artists help us see that. Wait, just to be clear, Amanda, you and I are working really hard. Alun is taking a year off. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you know, to rebound on what you just said, because I love what you said, you know, would you say like in like, just like in, in two words that like, you know, art is almost like, you know, our deja vu, you know, like sort of like in the matrix of like, okay, you know, like this is where we at this like, you know, checkpoint. Yeah, it is deja vu too. It's a cycle. It's a, it circulates and comes back around again and goes and goes and goes. We always think, especially when we see the moment a little bit better, this has never happened before. This is a unique experience. Guess what? It's not like the history repeats itself. This kind of shit happens over and over again. Uh, these ethical issues we're seeing, especially today with reparations and restitutions, like these have been conversations that have happened for a hundred years. How, you know, this is not new, but we pretend like it is. <laughs> but I think that's also in some ways an excuse. Yeah, this It's not new. It's deja vu over and over again. Right. All right. Amanda, I know you got to be out very soon. So let, let's try and wrap this up. So Alun, is there any topics that we haven't talked about that you want to sort of like have a little quick conversation about? No, I'm just like, at this point, I'm just really curious to see your, your art, your photography, you know, so I'll uh, definitely hit you up on that, you know, after the, the, the show. <laughs> I got to send you Mineski, Martin and Wood, and I got to send you my art. Got it. Deal. <laughs> 
want to know about that little rocket man you've got sitting on your <laughs> microphone. It's my Legos. Nice. I, every time I do a thing, I, I put a different little Lego man. This one today's rocket man. Sometimes it's corn cob man. <laughs> it, it's to keep me entertained. <laughs> And it also tells me if I'm hitting my microphone because if I hit it, it'll fall off. So it tells me if I'm doing too much, getting too worked up. But anyways, okay. The, the narwhal of productivity. The narwhal of productivity is fueled by the blood of its enemies. <laughs> this is my little adorable power knot. Okay. That's by my desk. <laughs> Questionable yet cute. Yes. Okay. All right. Exactly. Um, like me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Alun, any thoughts? Yeah, any parting ideas, Alun? Because unfortunately, Amanda has to leave. No, I'm actually going to do photo shoots right after that, you know, and uh, and yeah. So just oh yeah, I heard I heard that one thing, you know, like from um, people from Capo Verde, and they were just saying like, life is love, you know. <laughs> I just want to end on that, you know, life is love. Marvelous. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Alun. And see you soon. <laughs> Cheers. I hope you are learning as much from this podcast as I am. I've learned so many things that I've done wrong in my career and many things that I need to put more effort into moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Todd FF for their five-star rating. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. And the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find more information on Instagram at thewisefoolpod or on our website, which is simply wisefoolpod.com.